Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Backchat. If the Nature podcast is a direct and firm order from someone in a position of authority, then Backchat is a sly wink and a nudge in the ribs. And appropriately, this month Backchat is all about manipulation. Manipulating ourselves with drugs or with our own thoughts, or manipulating others, or others manipulating us. All topics that we've covered in some way or another in Nature during February. I'm Kerry Smith and I'm pleased to introduce my manipulative colleagues, David Adam. Hello, I work for Nature. I commission and edit the editorials and the Worldview opinion page. Also joining us, Sarah Abdullah. Hello, Gary. I'm Sarah. I um, run the comment section. And on the phone from Munich, Alison Abbott. Hi, Kerry. Yes, I'm a journalist with Nature and, as you said, I work out of the Munich office. Lovely. Now, coming up, psychologists rerun one of the most infamous experiments in history, Stanley Milgram's study showing how people blindly obey authority. And how should we game our own natures, manipulate our own cognitive biases so that they work in our favour, particularly for the benefit of future humans? And we'll also be discussing the best way to manipulate brains so they perform better. Let's begin with an update to an, a famous, infamous experiment. Uh, Alison Abbott, you've been writing about this in a news story. Can you just tell us a little bit about Stanley Milgram and the original study he performed in the 60s? Well, it's, a, it's actually a series of studies that he performed in the 60s and the beginning of the 1970s. And it's essentially to investigate to what extent will we obey orders to harm other people. What Milgram did was to recruit people who thought that they were taking part in an experiment on learning. And he told them that what they had to do was to control a a person learning in a a neighbouring room, that they could hear him but they could not see him. When that person made a mistake, they would press a button to deliver an electric shock to them. And each time they made a mistake, the electric shock given would be stronger. They could hear the screams of this person, who in fact was an actor and not receiving any pain at all. And at a certain point, round about a fictitious 150 volts, the person actually went silent, indicating that it had gone unconscious or died, but the people still kept pressing the button. And what we learn from this is that if you do receive orders to hurt somebody, you will actually carry them out. And it was controversial, wasn't it, because of the links Milgram made to, well, this is perhaps how uh, we can explain how, how Nazis behaved and followed orders, inverted commas, blindly. But it was also controversial for the ethical 
situation he put people in, right? The, the actual participants. Yes, I think it was interesting because of its relevance to the, the situation in wars like um, in the Third Reich. The unethical part of his experiment, the controversial part of his experiment, was in deceiving people into thinking that they really had caused extreme harm to somebody else, perhaps even killed them. This is why, since then, nobody has ever been able to repeat those experiments, even though they're very important, because you would never get ethical permission, and quite rightly so too. So Patrick Haggard, the psychologist and neuroscientist at UCL, has in fact gained permission recently to do something uh, similar, if not quite the same. Tell us about this modern Milgram experiment. The thoroughly modern Milgram, as our editor said about it. So in this, there was no deception involved. And counterintuitively, the participants in the study actually did inflict pain. Right, so, so Haggard and his team had participants sit opposite each other in pairs and they had a few options. They could either choose to take a small amount of money from the other person, choose to take money and give the person a painful electric shock, or they could be ordered by the experimenter just to take the money or take the money and give them, give them the shock. While they were doing this, they were measuring two things. Firstly, a, a sort of a time perception um, measure because psychologists know that the time, the perceived time interval between your action and the outcome of your action seems shorter if you think you're in charge of it. And it seems longer if, you, if you're essentially feeling that you're doing something passively or somebody else is responsible. And secondly, in a different experiment, they actually measured the um, neuronal activity in the brain in the person delivering the shock and the fact was that there was less uh, neuronal activity in the frontal part of the brain where uh, complex action takes place when the people were told by the, in, by the experimenter to press the button. Is this basically just an effective replication that um, is appropriate for modern times or does it move the story on? It moves the story on and it moves the story on in this way Milgram's experiment showed that people will um, obey orders to harm others. Haggard's experiment shows how they can come to do this, what happens in their brain that makes this possible. When you are told to do something, your brain goes into a passive mode. It processes in a passive way. Alison, how much did they... Um interrogate this by by the type of person who was who was asked to do this i mean for example did they find that older people perhaps were less willing to do it than younger people or did they look at personality types and find that there was a certain personality type that was more willing to resist everybody was more or less of the same age because the volunteers were students in this study but they did test do personality tests for all of them in advance of the um, actual experiment and there was um, no impact of personality on their um, willingness to do this. Are you suggesting that the brain studies suggest that this was more of an unconscious action to follow the order? They weren't actually putting any cognitive effort into processing it themselves? I suppose that doesn't diminish, in the legal sense, responsibility for one's actions. Just because you didn't feel responsible doesn't mean you are not responsible. Or, I mean, what would, what would legal experts say about this? Of course, nobody thinks that just because you don't feel responsible in, in your unconscious way that this in any way mitigates any crime or bad behaviour. 
But the debate in legal circles is really to think about, you know, where the balance of personal personal responsibility lies when you have this chain of command, um, which ends up in somebody being harmed. And I think what they would say from this experiment is that for each particular case, you would think more carefully about the personal responsibility of the person who gave the orders. In terms of military, of course, this is already part of the system. The person giving the orders carries full responsibility. But this experiment doesn't relate only to crimes and and legal activities and military activities. We can think of lots of things in normal life. For example, when somebody in a, a government ministry misbehaves, does something um, that's not quite legal and this has repercussions, should the minister resign? In German governments, yes, they do. In other governments, well, they, you know, they don't always take that responsibility. And this type of experiment um, is grist to the mill of these types of discussion. I think what's really nice is if it's a kind of, these are individual examples of things that when they operate over the collective across society, it's what gives rise to norms and fads and fashions. And um, it's really lovely seeing it kind of broken right down to individual action. Yeah, and that links in very nicely to our second topic, which has to do with how these individual actions and biases play out at the level of society. Sarah Abdullah, you've put together a special issue which has this as one of its themes. And there's an article on how we could better manipulate ourselves and uh, overcome our cognitive biases. That's by the behavioural economist Ernst Fair. He talks a lot about... um People are much more likely to be more frugal with their energy consumption if they hear about the energy consumption of their neighbours or uh, people take much better financial decisions if they have some, if in some way you can make visible the impact of their decisions. So a kind of a classic study is you, people are much more likely to invest in a pension if you show them what they look like, what they might look like when they're elderly. So you show them a sort of an aged photograph of themselves. Um, people are much more likely to, That's a bit creepy. <laughs> to invest for the future. And it's kind of uh, unsettling, but also um, edifying to hear about how, basically how poor we are at making decisions because we all feel that we're purely sort of logical agents. So there's a cognitive bias here, which people refer to as future discounting, where we're just not as good at thinking about the far future as we are about what's going to happen next week, next month, which is classically why people don't save enough money for their pensions. And I love this example of <laughs> looking at a picture of your old self, which would force you to sort of put a few more pence in the pot. And, and this is just one example, isn't it, of how we have a really wobbly grasp of the future and how we can improve how we think about the future. What inspired you, Sarah, to put the special together in the first place? The genesis for the special issue was um, some of the thinking that is beginning to emerge around gene editing. Um, so obviously that's one very uh, white-hot technology where um, people are beginning to think, well, actually we could take um, we could be taking decisions now that affect not just children but their children and many generations hence. And do we have the ethical and philosophical frameworks to be taking those decisions um, because somebody who's born 300 years hence, what are their rights? Having 
brought together the package, one of the things that really struck me was that it's almost as if the generations as yet unborn are sort of the newest minority who's, they're obviously they're the majority, so it doesn't quite work apart from linguistically, but in the sense of um, we are doing discrimination by date of birth. So a lot of the climate models essentially devalue lives in the future as compared with lives now. Uh, but it's not something that we explicitly think about. So going back to what Alison talked about, a lot of this behaviour is um, implicit and subliminal. And But it seems to be it's becoming baked into the maths of our models, which is alarming. On that last point, I, I think empirically it's been pretty fair. It's been a pretty fair assumption that future generations will be better prepared to sort stuff out than we are, because that's what we've seen over the last few hundred years. I think it's only really in economic and social terms, that we're starting to see that process in developed countries stall. And, you know, there's there's a big talk about how this generation or the millennial generation uh, is going to be the first generation that actually has less in a material sense than, than the parents. Um, and so I think it's right that we're now starting to challenge that, but I don't think it's necessarily a fault that that's been the assumption. I think when we talk about long-term issues, I mean, they don't come much longer term than nuclear waste because this is stuff that we are producing now and, and have produced over the last 50 or 60 years uh, which is going to remain really dangerous for maybe a million years a million years um, what do we do with it so one of the ideas is that we're going to stick it in the ground um, and then the question becomes well these future generations when they come along because they're going to be cleverer and brighter than us we should give them the, the chance to to basically do what they want with it so if we put it in a hole in the ground, we have to make sure that we don't seal that hole in the ground. We have to make sure they can go in and get it. But the problem with that is that at some point in the future, we have to assume that people are going to forget about it. Because if you think we don't, you know, we don't, people say we don't even know how the pyramids were built or Stonehenge or we don't know the mysteries of the Inca Empire. And these are all empires which were only a couple of thousand years ago, you know, in, in 500,000 years time, we have to assume that we don't have this knowledge anymore. And therefore, even if these future generations have this amazing technology, it's irrelevant because they don't know the stuff is down there. So the worldview piece is, is a bit like saying, at least with nuclear waste, let's divide them into the near future generations and the far future generations. And the, the, the division between those is at the point at which the memory or the information is lost. I can see a lot of sense in this argument, but these numbers that you're giving me, I can also feel my own cognitive bias against it, right? 500,000 years, 1 million years. I can't, I can't even think, you know, past lunchtime. Really, How do philosophers do this? Well, there's no reason for you to, to, to do that, right? I mean, I don't really care. <laughs> I'd much rather <laughs> care about my own family and my own generations. And, 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 and because that's, it's a cognitive bias, but it's an entirely justifiable one because... You know, we have developed as a species, not needing to care about what's going to happen in, let alone, 10 years. But this is, um, this is also a political issue, isn't it? Because I think with nuclear waste, we could relatively easily solve the problem in the next 10, 20 years if we put our minds to it. But it's just sort of not possible politically to address it. I think, yeah, I think people, because the future generations don't have a voice, people can project a voice onto them to speak whatever they want. So if you're the kind of person who 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 wants who doesn't want to find a solution to nuclear waste because that's a way you think of opening the door to more nuclear power in in the current um in in the present 
um, then you are going to say, well, you know, we shouldn't do this because the future generations might not want to do that. Or if you're the other way around, you might say, well, future generations are going to want to be able to do this, so therefore we should do that now, and, and so on and so on. So I think, I think you're right. I think it's a um, people sort of invoke what they want from from the future. Have you guys got better? During the course of putting the special together, thinking more about the future than normal, do you, do you feel yourselves with any more cognitive tools for thinking about the future than you, you did beforehand? Has anyone, I don't know, put things in a nice light for you that made you think, oh, yeah? I think the um, discrimination by date of birth was quite a kind of moment of pause for me. That was the <laughs> point at which I realised that, albeit a heterogeneous group of people and not just a kind of a mass that are all very similar, as David just said, there is... Uh, a sector of society as yet unborn um, that we are um, we're chucking them some fairly tricky stuff they're going to be left to deal with I suppose and the other thing that struck me is how there's a lot of reinventing the wheel in science so if you work in nuclear waste you know, it, it, even if you were working in nuclear waste in the 1960s you've been thinking about the long now that was baked into what you did as a nuclear waste engineer or policymaker or whatever. And I think what we're trying to achieve with the package is to say, guys, walk across the corridor and talk to some of your mates who might be in a seemingly completely different field. I mean, what would nuclear waste people and genomic, genome editing people have to say to one another five years ago? And at least try to um, share some of the tools. One of the dangers, actually, of... of um of exploring this is, is because the timescale is so big, um, it almost becomes a theoretical exercise. And I think it's almost, it's easier for people to discuss the problems of the future than it is to address the problems of the present. And I, I feel this quite strongly about climate change. Um, you know, a lot of people who warn about the future, I mean, it's quite the near future, you know, 100, 200 years. Oh, it's going to be awful for all of the the, the people in the regions where the rain's going to change. and, and But it's already really difficult for loads of people in those parts of the world now. And it's almost as if by talking about what we can do to protect the people of the future, it almost gives us sort of a moral get-out-of-jail-free card because we don't have to talk about the problems of the people of the present. Yeah, it's almost like a Goldilocks zone. Too far away is sci-fi, too near is firefighting, and too, too much like a sort of emergency. But if in that mid-range, perhaps they're far enough away that we could try and solve those problems uh, in a rational way without panicking. We've talked about then manipulating the communities we live in, manipulating our own natures. Uh, right back to the beginning, we talked about how Milgram showed how we manipulate uh, each other. Um, David, you've been researching some traditional, some less traditional ways of, you know, individual manipulation, manipulating even our brains. Well, I, yeah, I think in, in terms of the future, there is this this idea that humanity is is constantly improving, and and they even call it sort of transhumanism or, or H plus if if you Google it. But one of the things that I'm very interested in on a personal level is is mental illness and treatments around mental illness. One of the things that I know they're looking at is they've gone right back to um, 100 years ago, and they're starting to see whether they can use small electric currents and magnetic fields to change the way the brain works in mental illness. Now, the exact mechanism is a bit of a mystery. It's a little bit like we've done some brain scans. We know that this region of the brain seems to work differently in schizophrenia or depression or OCD. So we're going to try and change the way it functions by blasting it or not blasting it, by, by tickling it with electricity or magnets. So that's being done and it's being done in a very controlled clinical way. 
Um, but because it's so easy to do it, uh, people are also doing it on themselves. Terms and conditions apply. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> and so I was just, I'm very interested in, in that, both that as a dynamic and also just the question of, well, does it work? And if, and if it does work, um, the ethical questions are, are extraordinary. I mean, the other thing that's become sort of semi-ubiquitous in some circles is drugs for cognitive enhancement. So originally they were um, produced for kind of Alzheimer's treatments. And then, you know, if one worked out, you could kind of ace your finals. Um, you get into a kind of, um, well, if I'm at some extremely swanky university and I'm not taking these things to do my finals, I'm going to be at a disadvantage. And then the norms shift. In the UK, there's been some public consultation exercises around all, around enhancement in general, genetic, cognitive, drugs, blah, 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 blah. And interestingly, what seems to emerge in terms of people's yuck factor is that people are quite comfortable with the notion of enhancement in order to aid a disability. And that runs across from kind of plastic surgery to drugs. And then once you get into uh, enhancement to almost sort of give you superpowers, that's when the sort of the, the lay person's yuck factor kicks in. I mean, obviously, there's probably a uh, different responses among nerds um, who might think, oh, bring it, that's quite exciting. Um, but it's that's kind of intriguing that across all different technologies, we have a sense of ease with therapeutic enhancement, but a sense of mm, there's something a bit uncanny and distressing about, uh, you know, a, a, to the creation of a kind of Gattaca-style super race. Just because we've got back to ethics at the very end here, Alison, I'm just intrigued to ask you a question I forgot to ask you earlier. Firstly, did Patrick Haggard take ages to get ethical approval? And then secondly, are there any other tests you or psychologists would love to see rerun now that, we, now that we've been able to do uh, Milgram again? <laughs> I don't think um, Patrick had a lot of trouble getting ethical uh, permission because he designed the experiment to be not unethical so no problem there I think. The one that everybody sort of brackets often with Milgram is the Stanford prison experiment. Philip Zimbardo. Has that been rerun? Should it be? I think that was a, an extremely unethical experiment that doesn't need to be rerun and in a sense one has to say what do we want to gain by rerunning the experiment and in many ways Patrick Haggard did not rerun the Milgram experiment he ran an experiment which was asking scientific questions that emerged really from the Milgram experiment. So it's a sort of next generation Milgram. So probably um, none of this needs to be redone in a way. There's been, and there's been other ways of other reruns. I think I, re I wrote a story in like almost 10 years ago for Nature about a virtual reality rerun of Milgram where you were harming a virtual reality character and even then the same effects kind of came to the fore but even though people were looking at a computer and knowing that it was a computer still some of the psychological effects that he had observed were there can i thank you all at the very end of the show here for joining me and uh just fyi there's no there will be no need to further enhance your amazing brains um <laughs> they are great as they are thank you to alison abbott to sarah abdullah and to david adam for joining me i'm kerry smith this has been back chat thanks for listening Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or 
anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com.